Well, I don't know if you've ever heard or said something like this, that my prayer life has gone cold, it's gone anemic, it's lifeless. I've heard versions of that countless times and sometimes coming out of my own mouth. I just look in the mirror and say, my prayer life is not what it ought to be. Well, tonight I have the cure for an anemic prayer life, and that is to pray kingdom prayers. Uh, This morning we looked at praying for the very uh, earthy things, our own children, our own families. And tonight we're going to look at just the opposite, and that is praying big, praying beyond ourselves, praying for God's program that has really nothing to do with me in particular except that I get to be a part of it. As you remember last week, Jesus gave us a command to pray kingdom prayers. These are prayers prayed before give us this day our daily bread. This is the prayer that says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, that's a prayer for Christ to come and to establish his kingdom on this earth and so that the earth is no longer ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the evil one, but it is now ruled by Christ. And that just as God's will is done perfectly above, it is done perfectly below as well. And so last week we began exhorting ourselves to elevate our prayer life to include kingdom prayers, prayers for God's overall program, prayers for his coming rule on the earth. And we started with the exhortation to pray for the coming division of mankind, that God will, in fact, separate the wheat from the tares and that we're to pray for this, we're to long for that day, we're to to look for that day. And I suggested as we kind of got going with this series that there are several benefits to you praying kingdom prayers. First of all, it matures your faith beyond the status quo. It, it really elevates you to a really different ideal in your own faith as you look beyond just your own personal circumstances. Another benefit, it promotes evangelistic prayer. It promotes evangelistic prayer because the saved in this age enter the kingdom in the next. And so there's a, there's a great connection between being concerned for the present because of the future. And then I suggested that praying kingdom prayers gives you comfort that God will sovereignly work in your own life because if you're confident that he's going to take care of the big picture, then your little picture is easy. And it gives us confidence in his sovereignty in our own life. And so tonight we're considering Isaiah 58 and 59. And Isaiah has brought us to this point as he writes from Isaiah 40 onward to the exiles in Babylon, the Israelite exiles. But we've seen countless times that the Babylonian exile is really just a model. It's just a mock-up of the bigger kingdom picture that God is painting in Isaiah. So tonight my message is entitled, Pray for Repentance and Mercy. And our outline this evening is simple. Pray for repentance and mercy. So don't say I never throw you a softball on occasion. This will be easy. So first, we pray for repentance. Pray for repentance. Now, chapter 58, in this chapter, God's going to expose empty, false religion of false believers. And it's really a critique of Israel's degenerate religious practices. Now, last time we saw a partial critique. We saw a critique of the the pagan practices that some of them had begun to, to initiate. But they continued on as well in meaningless observances of the religious motions prescribed in the law of Moses. And so you had the, the pagan practices that we saw last week that almost resembled Druidism, But they've continued on trying to go through the motions of the Mosaic sacrificial system. But we'll also see that Israel had taken God's prescribed means of worship and they had inserted 
Canaanite philosophy into it. They had inserted a new sort of syncretism, a melding together of true religion and false religion, much as the Colossian church was being tempted to do in the New Testament. And so the purpose of chapter 58 is to produce repentance. Now, repentance is created by God. It originates with God. Chapter 57, verse 19, says that God creates the fruit of the lips. He creates repentance. But it's the proclamation of the word of God that's the means that God uses to produce this repentance. And so chapter 58, verse 1, is a call to rebuke the false believers. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. What does it mean to lift up your voice like a trumpet? Well, the trumpet is representative of giving a message that ought not to be ignored, that it can't be ignored. But there's also some symbolism here. The Old Testament in particular is filled with symbols and it's always useful to connect the dots and see where those symbols are used elsewhere. And the trumpet, when we're talking about crying aloud, not holding back and declaring to people their transgression, the trumpet is most obviously hearkening back to Israel's first day as a nation, the day that they were formed as a nation where they first agreed to covenant with God as his underling, so to speak. This was the day when God officially formed the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, and God made certain that it was an unforgettable moment. Let's see if you can catch how he made certain it was unforgettable. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 19 of Exodus 19, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Chapter 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And so when you talk to people about declaring to them their transgression and the trumpet, what is a Jew going to think about? Oh, that reminds me back of the, the time at Sinai when God gave the law and the trumpets were blasted to get our attention. But who is God talking to here? To whom is God issuing this trumpet call to rebuke the false believers? Well, the reference back to Sinai, the reference to the giving of the law, it seems that God is symbolically speaking to the law itself to rebuke Israel, telling the law to do its work. Now, just to back up and give us a little background here, the Apostle Paul said that it was an advantage to a Jew because to be a Jew because they had been given something that no other people on earth possessed. Romans 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. And here's the first advantage. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That the Jew was given the very written revelation of God himself. One of the purposes of the law is to stop excuses, to stop sin in its tracks, to stop sin in the name of ignorance of God's standards. Paul says in Romans 3, 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. And so the law exists in part to stop excuses, to call us to account, to set the standard. And so God, here in verse 1, speaking to the law, as it were, tells the law to do something, to expose the false religiosity of his people. 
And to illustrate this point, God uses the example of fasting. In verses 2 through 5, the people are going to protest that, that they're religious. Hey, we should be given credit for our good works. You should give us some merit points here. And then in verses 6 through 12, God will show what true religion is compared to what they're doing. So first of all, we see that the people are protesting how religious they are. They're, they're complaining to God. In verse 2, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, before we get to the complaint, what God is doing here is on the surface, their religious practices appear healthy. They appear real. But there's a note of irony and sarcasm in verse 2. Because in reality, God is not accepting their worship. They're doing religious things. They're wanting to know God's ways. They, they appear to not forsake the Lord. They appear to delight in God. They appear to be interested in the things of the Lord. And so God presents his people as making protests, that they're doing good things. They're, they're attending temple worship. They're making sacrifices. They're fasting. And in verse 3, the people say, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Now, at first, this seems like a reasonable protest. We're doing all these things. Why, why is it not good enough for you, Lord? Why are your standards so high? Now, we need to hit the pause button just for a moment and see what they're talking about. The only commanded fast in the law was an annual fast on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23 tells us this. It was a day of self-deprecation. It was a day of, of self-denunciation. It was a day to reflect on your sin. But over time, a tradition of fasting more frequently had developed and was, at least for the false believers, much more in the spirit of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. A, a spirit of performing meritorious works in order to gain the favor of of God rather than something done in loving response to what God has already given. Uh, the self-righteous prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18 illustrates this perfectly. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. How many times was it fast commanded? Once a year. And this guy's up to twice a week. This is 104 times a year. And yet he is using that to proclaim his own righteousness. This is a man clearly impressed with himself and believing that God should be impressed with him. But the fasting of the false believer, a day that really legitimately could have been used to truly seek the Lord, to truly focus your heart on humility and on sin and on confession, it was really no different than any other day. It didn't make any actual difference. The end of verse 3, second half of verse 3, this is God's judgment. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. A fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. There's no heart change. The day of fasting doesn't actually do anything for them. It's nothing more than the ancient version of a bank holiday. I mean, every Memorial Day, how many Americans actually take time to contemplate American soldiers lost in combat? Very few. It now becomes a bank holiday, and that's what fasting became, or it became an ancient version of going to Catholic Mass to perform rituals in order to gain the merit of God. 
And God's point here is that the fasting of a true believer shouldn't end in fighting. It shouldn't end in in wickedness. It should produce kindness. It should produce holiness. It should produce goodness. And at the end of verse 4, their their fasting is a form of currency that can't be spent in heaven. It's not recognized by God. It's just meaningless, empty, religious exercise. In fact, the people had created routines and rituals to go with their their fasts. They They had made it more and more elaborate, more and more fancy, more and more detailed to give the appearance of reality. Human ritual will almost always get you in trouble because at first it represents something real and then it becomes that which is real. So here's their ritual, verse five. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? On the day of fasting, the routine was you bow your head, you get some sackcloth covered with ashes, maybe you say a few self-righteous prayers, then you get up and you be just as wicked as always, just as selfish, oppress your employees, be just as horrible and self-focused as you always were. It's like the Italian gangsters who go to mass to ask for forgiveness before going to rob a bank. It just doesn't make any difference. It's just a religious ritual. Now, how is it that the Canaanite way of thinking religiously had infiltrated true Yahweh worship? I think you'll find this interesting. It was to me. The basic premise behind Canaanite and many other pagan forms of worship was to pressure their gods to do things for them. For example, some of the sexual religious rites performed in the name of Baal worship was to entice Baal to give fertility to the fields and the animals and the people. That perhaps if they could entertain him or perhaps if they could entice and and, and talk him into being gracious to them, that he might do something for them. And so when the false believers in Israel are fasting, It's not out of love for God. It's not out of humility of spirit. It is not out of a desire to know God. It is for the purpose of pressuring God, manipulating God to do what they want. If I can put it this way, it was the earliest form of the prosperity gospel. And so they asked the question in verse three, we've done all this stuff to make you happy. Why aren't you doing what we want now? Why aren't you returning the favor? Now this is interesting and I think it's important for us to understand this because it applies to every false religion of every time period, including today. The essence of false religion is to elicit a response from a passive God. That if you do enough, then God or whatever form of God you define, he will respond to you. That is the essence of false religion, all false religion. But the essence of true Yahweh worship worship of the true and living God is that he's an active God who has already extended grace, already extended mercy and forgiveness, and he's worthy of our response, our response of love and our response of obedience. You see the difference? And what the Israelites had done was to turn their fasting into Canaanite pagan worship. We're doing this for you because we see you as a passive God that ought to now return the favor to us. In contrast, the Lord shows what the life of a truly repentant person looks like. In verse 6, Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, on a true fast day, lives are changed. It's a day of remembering God's grace and extending it to others. Verse 6 simply speaks of human kindness of every kind, that the, the true believer is eager to do good for your society, to do good for your community. This isn't a, a social gospel where the goal of the gospel is somehow to bring social justice. It's a gospel of grace with the result that if everybody, and remember, we're talking to an Israelite society, if everybody will live this way, then you have a society where everyone cares for one another because they all have the same genuine faith. I mean, that, that would be amazing. And in verse 7, the faith of the repentant creates a heart of compassion for your individual neighbor. In a society in which it's not the government that's to take care of the down and out, it's the citizens. The sign of repentance is that the law is being kept in regard to caring for those in need. What was the law? This is what God required. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 7, if among you one of your own brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That that's what a truly repentant person looks like. You have a heart of love, a heart of compassion, a heart of justice. And now to the true believers who fast because of God's goodness and mercy, look how the floodgates of heaven open. In verse 8 Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. That that a nation like this, God will deliver. He will bless them. These are the personal blessings that can be expected by the one who's repented and truly humbled himself before God. He says your righteousness, meaning a right standing provided by God, And it shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is the idea of armor. This is the idea of protection. And this is a phenomenal statement about the glory of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord is something to be feared. It's something to distance yourself from. Moses asked the Lord, show me your glory. And God answered, you cannot see my face for man cannot see my face and live. That the glory of God is something to be, to be afraid of, to run away from, to avoid. But in salvation, there's fellowship, there's intimacy, intimacy with the Lord such that the glory of God now guards you, now guards you spiritually. And if you have true saving faith in the Lord, an inner authenticity manifested in heart obedience rather than just external form manifested in religion, then you can expect the Lord to attend to your needs. This is so beautiful. You can expect him to be a help to you. Verse 9, Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry and he will say, Here I am. Verse 10, the second half, Then your light, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Verse 11, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. In other words, Israel's cries for help will be heard. 
God will be her guide. He will satisfy her. He will strengthen her. God will restore Israel and Jerusalem. The ancient ruins will come back to life. But what's the condition? The condition is that true salvation is demonstrated in a changed life. That if your outward manifestation of obedience is proving the reality of love for the Lord, then your cries will be heard. I gave you all of the then statements, but God gives the if statements. Verse nine, second half. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. What does it mean to take away the yoke? It means the the oppression of fellow citizens. In Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, the book of Habakkuk outlines that one of the great problems they had was that the haves were oppressing the have-nots. They were not treating one another as brothers and sisters. They were treating one another as enemies. And that the outflow of sinful hearts made its way to the top levels, made its way to the priesthood, made its way to the governing officials so that they were so corrupt that they used people for their own benefit. And that was the, the outworking of an unrepentant nation. But repentance says, take away the yoke, take away that oppression. The pointing of the finger and the speaking and speaking wickedness. Stop accusing, stop gossiping, stop being so difficult to be with. If you pour out yourself to the hungry, that you help and you take care of one another, that you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, that you have mercy on those who are in great pain and great trial. That's what repentant people do. Now, I want to notice here, and this has been really eye-opening to me, that the doctrine of conversion is not just a New Testament doctrine. Conversion, turning from sin and turning to the Lord is manifested in obedience. That's always been required for true salvation. That's always been the requirement. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. Conversion and justification, all in one statement. Conversion has always been the standard. So now God gives a a synopsis, a a final set of if-then statements, once again, to the epitome of a faithful Israelite as a Sabbath keeper. And we get to this idea of Sabbath here in verse 13. If you turn your foot, turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. The Sabbath was considered the epitome of what a law-abiding Jew kept. And we talked about this last time, that that was really the litmus test. If you love the Sabbath, you probably love all the rest of the law as well. But basically, he's saying here, if you stop the religious motions from making the Sabbath about yourself, and by the way, this happens in the church today, that making the local church about me and my feelings and my needs instead of gathering together as people who desire to worship Christ, the complainers and the I have to have my way-ers who are never satisfied when being fed the meat of the word instead of being grateful and thankful and eating and supping at the table of the Lord, look only at the negative. It's the same problem. It's the same difficulty. God says, if you will turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, making it all about you. If you'll do that, then, the end of verse 13, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, 
then. Then the heart of the true worship is demonstrated. The true worshiper demonstrates himself. Then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. In other words, I'll give you all that I promised to Israel for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the if then to deny the existence of repentance as part of the gospel is to deny all of Isaiah 58. It is one giant if-then statement. Could I encourage you in your prayer life to pray for repentance because that's the means by which God will populate his future kingdom? Do you understand that every person who will enter the kingdom of heaven at one time bent the knee to God and confessed and adored the Lord by saying, you are holy and I am unholy? Every single one. There will not be a single citizen of heaven who did not do that. So pray for a repentant nation of Israel and pray for countless repentant Gentiles. Now, obviously, the Middle East has been a hotbed of war and aggression for about 4,000 years. And the U.S. just led a strike against Syrian targets because of a recent chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government on its own people. Even today, the Palestinian people, for the most part, see the only solution for them having an independent state is the obliteration of Israel that that's the only solution they can see in undoing the 1948 formation of Israel as a reunified nation. And of course, the organization Hamas, which is an Arabic acronym that means Islamic Resistance Movement, which interestingly, the word Hamas in Hebrew means violence, is regarded by the U.S. as a terrorist organization, but they try to present themselves as legitimate. And so you have this clash happening. It's very interesting. The Wall Street Journal published an article this week by an Israeli guy by the name of Yossi Klein Halivai. And his basic contention is that the only way to have peace between Israel and the Palestinians is to agree to two separate coexisting states rather than each one trying to destroy the other. Now, from a human standpoint, that sort of has some merit and it would save lives. But Halivi makes the point that while both groups have an ancient claim to the entire land of what should be Israel, Israel's claim goes back 4,000 years to Abraham. That's hard to refute. But there isn't a solution outside of the gospel. What is the real solution? The real solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ because no matter what Israel does right now, and I hope that you pray for Israel. When, no matter what Israel does right now, as a nation, she still hasn't turned to Christ. As a nation, if Jesus were to be born in Bethlehem today, 30 years later, he would be crucified there. As a nation, religious actions are still to get God to do something. They're still the people of Isaiah 58, verse 3. So what are we called to do? What kind of kingdom prayers for repentance are we called to pray let me give you a couple of suggestions. Turn over to Psalm 122 with me for a moment. Psalm 122. Now this psalm is found in the series of psalms known as the Song of Ascents. Songs to accompany going up to the temple of God to worship. And the pilgrim coming from miles away enduring the hardship of ancient travel, he was overjoyed to arrive in Jerusalem. And so we see at the beginning of the psalm his joy. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We're here. We've made it. And now the worshiper arrives in Jerusalem. And it's a Jerusalem that's characterized by unity and joy and in the living God. That's not the Jerusalem of today, obviously. 
In verse 3, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. In other words, they're unified, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This is a very, very different picture of the assessment of Jerusalem that Jesus made. His assessment was, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. Now, just so you know this here, this is not a symbolic Israel of any kind. The actual tribes of Israel are journeying to to worship. And verse 5 looks to a future time when justice will reign in Jerusalem, when the house of David will rule and will bring equity once again. And then we get the specifics of a kingdom prayer for repentance. And here it is. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So what are we to pray for? We're to pray for a coming day when Jerusalem is ruled by Christ and peace reigns in the nation that's turned to the Lord and is now a beacon of love and a beacon of mercy and truth to all the nations. When when I read Psalms like Psalm 122, I find it difficult to grasp that there are believers who don't believe in the future restoration of Israel. I, I find that difficult to grasp. Now, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you don't believe that God's going to restore a physical nation of Israel. And you might say that these Old Testament references are really more symbolic and just have to do with the the people of God as a whole, and that's okay. That's not a salvation issue. Um, We'll still be in heaven and on the new earth when we get to a sign that says, now entering Israel, I'll point at it and kind of do this and say, see. But I want to point out a couple of things that are a little bit hard to get around. We're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I don't know how that fits into a theology that says Israel will never be restored. I don't know how to reconcile those two. Revelation 21 describes a new heaven and a new earth after the old heavens and the first earth has been melted down and in my view, redeemed, remade into the new sinless creation. 2 Peter 3 verse 7 confirms that this is associated with the day of judgment. So this is not some symbolic thing that has happened already as those who view the book of Revelation as past tense might say. And on this new earth, I just want to point out several features. First, New Jerusalem will be the central feature, not New Bakersfield or New Fresno. New Jerusalem. Second feature, New Jerusalem has 12 gates. And in case you doubt the Israel flavor of this city, every gate is inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, either one per per gate or 12 on each one. Third feature, New Jerusalem also has 12 foundations, perhaps large foundation stones. And on those are found the 12 names of the apostles, the men who carried the gospel to the world, and all of them Jews. Here's a fourth feature. Revelation 21 describes nations. Verse 24, by its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Chapter 22, verse 2, the leaves of the tree of life in New Jerusalem were for the healing of the nations. So, on a new earth, you have a new city named Jerusalem with 24 monuments to Jews. And this city is the central location on an earth that's made up of nations. What nation do you think that would be in? There is no other possible answer except Israel. 
So we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the repentance of turning in earnest to the true and living God, for the Jews to fulfill Zechariah twelve ten that I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. We're to pray for the Gentile to fulfill Isaiah 5, 26, that he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. You have to understand that at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, one of the greatest joys you will have outside of being able to see Christ in person, one of the greatest joys you will have will be the restoration of Israel and the cleansing of all the nations. As we go through the rest of Isaiah, you're going to see that is the great joy of the Gentile. So first, pray for repentance. Second, pray for mercy. Pray for mercy. Go back to Isaiah 59 now, if you will. And in verses one through eight, we're going to see one of the clearest presentations of the total depravity of mankind in the Old Testament. The fact that mankind is so saturated in sin that no individual can turn to God of his own accord, that we're not somehow supplied with enough grace, sometimes called prevenient grace. We're not supplied with grace to make a logical decision to turn to God. That is not God's provision for us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul will quote some of this section in his diatribe against the so-called inherent goodness of mankind in Romans 3, where he says famously, there's no one who seeks for God, there's no one who does good. Verse 1 tells us that God is not the problem. He is fully able to save. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God is fully able to save. So what is mankind like? Well, we get just a laundry list here of, of our depravity. First, we're legally and spiritually separated from God. We were legally and spiritually separated from God. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The sense here is that this separation is is hopelessly eternal. That trying to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God is like trying to ride a bicycle to Mars. It's hopeless. You, You can't possibly do it. When God hides his face from you, you can't manipulate him into turning back to you. You can't fast enough days. You can't offer enough sacrifices. You you don't get God's attention by doing good works. So we're legally and spiritually separated from God. What else is mankind like? We're murderously selfish. We're murderously selfish in, in deed and in word. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. You notice the connection here between acts of violence and words and thoughts of violence? The two go together. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus associated false and angry words about your brother as murderous words, gossip and slander as murderous actions. That when you have wicked lips, and I might add wicked ears to listen to wicked lips, this is an act of violence. We're legally and spiritually separated. We're murderously selfish. What else does God tell us about depravity? We're out to crush others for our own benefit. We're out to crush others for our own benefit. Verse 4, 
No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. What is this? This pictures unjust lawsuits, slick legal maneuvers for ill-gotten gains, traps laid for the unsuspecting, using all kinds of manipulation and tricks. Now you might say, oh, that would never be me. Listen, I've had married couples in my office 30 feet from here who do these things to each other. So yes, it is us. But the selfishness won't satisfy. It'll never be enough. It'll never give you that sense of being finished or or being done. The webs of their schemes won't do it for them anymore. Verse six, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. That all of the schemes in the world won't satisfy. And so what do you have to do? You have to do more and more and more and more. How about this? We're wicked to the core of our minds. We're wicked to the core of our minds. Second half of verse six, their words are, their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity and desolation and destruction are in their highways. We are wicked to the core. Verse eight, the way of peace, they do not know. There's no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Why is this? The middle of verse seven tells us their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. So, if you're ever tempted to say that mankind is reasonably good, remember that mankind is legally and spiritually separated from God, murderously selfish, out to crush others for our own benefit, and wicked to the core of our minds. Now, someone might say, well, I'm not that bad. Maybe that's true. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't assert that the person is always as sinful as they could be. But we are sinful enough that we can't bridge the gap between us and God. We can't make a logical decision to deny ourselves and to exalt God. Our sinful human instinct is to deny God and to exalt self. That will always be our instinct. And now we get an amazing insight. We get the statements of people who are beginning to understand this. The statements of the brokenhearted who by God's grace alone realize their desperate spiritual situation. And we're gonna see beginning in verse nine, the first person plural pronouns, us. That God is not talking now. The depraved human beings are speaking and they're lamenting how hopeless their situation is. And they say, first of all, we can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. Verse nine, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. Meaning we're inherently unrighteous and we can't catch up that we can't do enough good to be made righteous, that the minute we do three good things, I've sinned 3,000 times before that. And I can't get caught up. I can't even the accounts. Second complaint they have is, we, we can't find God. We can't find God. Second half of verse nine, we hope for light and behold, darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We can't find God. We're blind. And they complain that we can't make salvation happen. We all growl like bears. Verse 11, we moan and moan like doves. 
We hope for justice, but there is none, for salvation, but it's far from us. That sin has created turmoil and, and chaos. This is the angry growl of a bear. This is, this is anger at the mess that sin has made. And the realization that I can't possibly undo this on my own. And it says, interestingly, we mourn like the moaning of a dove. What is that? Well, King Hezekiah helps us understand this. When he was dying in Isaiah thirty-eight fourteen, he said, I moan like the dove, O Lord, I am oppressed. It's, it's just a, a, a way of saying I'm, I'm so down, I'm so hopeless that I'm groaning and moaning. So we can't find God. We can't make salvation happen. We can't deny the weight of our guilt. Here's the key right here, verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. If somebody asks you, what must my heart attitude be to come to faith in Christ? Those two verses are spectacular to read them. Read to them. My transgressions are multiplied before you. All of my sin testifies against me. And God states the conclusion now that mankind cannot save himself. The moral failure is total. It's complete. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, there's no way out. You can try to run, but you will not make it. And so if humanity has a chance to be right with God, the chance has to come from God. And now Isaiah gets to really a critical fork in the road. What's God going to do with those whose transgressions are multiplied before him? What's he going to do? God presents himself in what's called an anthropomorphism. It's presenting God as if he is a regular man. And in this case, he's presenting, Isaiah's presenting God here as if he's been taken by surprise. That he's seeing something he didn't expect, seeing something that shocks him. And so he's moved to make a decision. Now, of course, in Ephesians 1, we understand that the elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. But Isaiah puts this in a very relatable sense, a very understandable uh, face on God's work of salvation. The end of verse 15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. It's like God saying, this is terrible. There's no one to save humanity from my wrath. Mankind deserves God's wrath and if he doesn't give it, then God is unjust and he tolerates sin. But he's pictured now as as seeing the problem and providing a solution. The problem is there's no one to take up the cause of the sinner. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. The solution is that God will be that man and God will take up the cause to intercede. Verse 16, second half, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So what's God going to do? Two things. First, he's going to glorify his grace and mercy. And second, he's going to glorify his justice and wrath. First, he'll glorify his grace and mercy. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 
God is shown as putting on armor to demonstrate his power to make others righteous like himself. Now, of course, he recognized some of the pieces of the armor of God that Paul has listed in Ephesians 6. But if I could put that in the context of Isaiah 59, verse 17, remember that before you were ever, ever able to wear the armor of God, God wore it first so that he could give it to you. That he was the first one to wear the armor of God. He gave righteousness. He gave salvation. So first, he'll glorify his grace and mercy. But second, he'll glorify his justice and wrath. Second half of verse 17, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. And this coming justice of God will rush upon the earth. It will cause great fear. The book of Revelation pictures this during the great tribulation in Revelation 16, beginning, or 6 rather, beginning of verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So God will glorify his grace and mercy to some and he will glorify his justice and wrath to others. So how's he going to bring salvation to Israel? How's he going to bring salvation to anyone? How's he going to not violate his justice and wrath against sin and yet save so many from sin? How will the mercy of God be made manifest? Verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. We've seen the judgment of God in verse 19, the fear, the rushing stream, the wind of the Lord driving. And you almost could just draw a huge line right between verse 19 and verse 20 that the redeemer will come. The answer to the Lord's rhetorical question in verse 16, where's the intercessor? Where's the mediator? Verse 20 is the answer. He'll be sent from heaven, sent first to the cross to satisfy God's wrath against sinners and sent specifically for whom? Verse 20, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is an important doctrinal point for us that Jesus did not die for all of humanity. He died for those who would receive him. The idea of unlimited atonement, that Jesus died to pay the price for sin of every single human being, if you go down that road, logically it leads either to believing in universalism, that God will ultimately save everyone, or it leads to having to acknowledge that God double-crossed a lot of people, that he paid for their sin and sent them to hell anyway. Neither of those are acceptable alternatives. Jesus died for those in Jacob who turned from transgression. He died for those who would receive him. And to save his people, God now speaks to the Redeemer. He commissions him. God the Father declaring to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, upon, upon the Redeemer, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth 
and forevermore. So first, the Spirit of God will make the ministry and the power and the preaching of Christ effective. And second, the Spirit of God will never depart from the offspring of the Redeemer, from all who would come to faith in Him. That it is the Spirit of God that will bring repentance through regeneration. So what is it that will save Israel? It is the new covenant. Most notably characterized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as inaugurated at Pentecost. This is a new covenant promise. Not yet completely fulfilled, because Israel has not come to Christ. But I want to leave you with something, more of just an observation Did you notice the overall theological position of Isaiah 58 and 59? And I I put this together as a unit on purpose. Isaiah 58 shows us man's responsibility in salvation. It is to repent. Isaiah 59 shows us God's part in salvation, and that is mercy and intervention, that that without him, repentance is impossible. And so we could summarize Isaiah 58 and 59 theologically that mankind is completely responsible for his own sin. He is totally culpable for whatever God does to him as a result and justice against him is warranted. He must believe in the Redeemer. But God is completely responsible for bringing the sinner to repentance that salvation is the work of God and the work of God alone observing the hopelessly lost situation of men and intervening. Or if I could put it the way Jesus put it in John 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Four verses later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus gives another phrase for the drawing work that the Father does, and this work is through the Spirit. In John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That is the drawing work of the Spirit of God. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul uses another term in Titus 3, verse 5. He calls it regeneration by the Holy Spirit. That's the great dichotomy. That every person who will spend eternity in hell is 100% responsible for their own sin, 100% responsible for having known the truth and rebelled against the truth and rejected the truth. And every person that is saved, God is 100% responsible for saving them. They did nothing. God caused the repentance. A guy by the name of William Burns, an early Scottish missionary to China, He wrote in his diary, How hard it is to unite in just proportions the humbling doctrine of man's inability to come to Christ without regeneration and the free gospel offer, which is the moral means employed by God in conversion. O Spirit of Jesus, my Savior, lead me, a poor, ignorant, and well-conceited sinner, to the experience of this great mystery of grace, that I may know how I ought to declare thy glorious gospel to perishing fellow sinners. Amen. The process of drawing us, the act of being born again, of regeneration, this is the mercy of God, Isaiah 59, to give spirit-empowered responses of repentance, Isaiah 58. So we have really the doctrines of grace in many ways presented here in these two chapters together, all so that God might fill the coming kingdom with citizens of Israel and citizens of the world. So you see, if you pray for repentance, 
you're praying for the response of man. And if you pray for mercy, you're praying for God to be gracious and to be kind. And that is a powerful prayer. And so if I could encourage you, if I could challenge you that this week in your time in prayer, get out of just praying for you, get out of just praying for your family, praying for your needs and take a moment and look ahead and remember that there will be a glorious day with a kingdom that has come and that the Lord has said to pray for that. And so we pray for repentance and we pray for mercy so that God might fill his kingdom with citizens. By the way, if you do that, that will elevate you above the mess. It elevates you above your own circumstances and it's a, it's a glorious look into the future. It's a time machine, little travel time to go to the millennial kingdom, to go to New Jerusalem and to say, let me, let me pray for those that I see there. Let me pray for the Lord to bring them in. So I hope that this week you will elevate your own prayer life to pray kingdom prayers. Our Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word and Isaiah 58 and 59 is just stunning in its scope and how clearly it presents repentance and mercy and how clearly it shows us that salvation is is your work and your work alone that there is nothing we can do there is no fast or religious work or sabbath keeping that we can do to be pleasing to you that you must reach out and draw us to yourself and that our response is to be obedient We thank you for those couple of dozen verses there, Lord, that so clearly speak to our hearts and remind us as we've used them this evening to pray for the lost. Every one of us knows people that we perhaps even nervously and with anxiety wonder where they stand before you. And so I'm encouraged and I pray that each person hearing this message is encouraged, Lord, to to lift them up in prayer, which is really our greatest and most lofty tool of evangelism, that we would pray for them to receive your mercy, and as a result of your mercy, they would be regenerated, and as a result of regeneration, they would repent, and they would understand that their sins are multiplied before you, and that their own iniquity testifies against them. Lord, to those that we know, bring them to that point. Save many, we pray. But we would also pray for those that we don't know. We pray for those all over the world, Lord, who are dying in their sin. The tens of thousands of people who leave this earth every single day. Lord, we pray that you would save many of them. We pray that you would bring them to faith. We pray that we would see them and know them and cherish them and rejoice with them and celebrate with them and weep with them and laugh with them and sing with them in the kingdom to come. And so we would obey the Lord Jesus to remember to pray, might your kingdom come, might your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.